welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. Thanks so much for tuning in, coming back to the show. First time listeners finding the show, welcome aboard. Always happy to have you. Glad to have your support. Hope you're finding the content enjoyable. Counterpunch is dependent on you guys. It's dependent on the subscribers to keep it going. We've been going for more than 25 years. We plan to do at least another 25, but we do need your support. The print magazine has been printed for the final time, but our brand new subscriber section is coming online very, very shortly. That's going to feature a whole lot of new content, including additional podcasts, including all of the columns that were previously in the print magazine, uh, printable articles for those people who are still attached to paper. All of that is going to be available and more, including searchable archives, a whole lot of stuff. So please do look for that. You can also get a t-shirt, support Counterpunch Radio, get a cool t-shirt, and uh, I will be very, very grateful. So Uh, Let me turn to my guest today. Very happy to speak with him again. Returning guest on the show. So much to talk about with him. Dave Zirin is with me. Dave is the sports editor for The Nation. You know his work most likely. If you don't, you should. Uh, You can follow him on Twitter at Edge of Sports. He's also the host of the excellent Edge of Sports podcast. Dave, welcome back to Counterpunch. Hey, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Great to talk to you again, particularly at this time. We got to, of course, jump into all of the news related to sports as it intersects with the politics and the social issues that we're all kind of getting swept up in here. So let's begin there, Dave. Help us to understand the timeline. What happened after the shooting of Jacob Blake and the subsequent demonstrations? What happened next? How did sports get involved? Well, sports got involved largely because of the business model that was accepted by the NBA and the WNBA players back in June. After the killing of George Floyd and as the marches uh, engulfed the United States, the largest marches in the history of the United States by sheer numbers, and the NBA and WNBA players, there was a real debate. Uh, They argued back in June about whether to play in this COVID-free bubble in Orlando or if they should just sit out the season so as not to distract from the demonstrations in the streets. Well, they did, of course, decide to go back. But as part of the deal, the owners and Commissioner Adam Silver incorporated Black Lives Matter into their messaging. You had Black Lives Matter written on the court, players kneeling during the anthem, coaches kneeling during the anthem, slogans written on the uniforms. I mean, you could call this woke capitalism, call it woke marketing. Uh, but it was corporate symbolism and the model of so many companies that put out statements against racism following Floyd's killing. But after the police shooting of Jacob Blake, that contradiction just became too intense. Players in the NBA and the WNBA, they, they were in this figurative and literal bubble away from their families and friends, living in dorms, saying to one another, here we are playing with BLM on our uniforms and it, we feel like chumps. You know, nothing is changing and we're just here with these slogans and we're in a bubble, literal and figurative. And that's what led the Milwaukee Bucks. And Milwaukee, of course, is just 45 minutes away from Kenosha, Wisconsin. Um, That's what led the Milwaukee Bucks to not come out uh, the locker room for their Wednesday playoff game. Now, other NBA teams followed and all the games were canceled that evening. And then it went to the WNBA, which was stirring, but not necessarily surprising. But then it went to Major League Baseball, which was really something given Major League Baseball's conservative history. Then it hit the NHL, Major League Soccer, Naomi Osaka, the tennis star of Japanese-Haitian descent, bowed out of her tournament. And what we had on our hands was a sports strike wave against racism. 
and that's how it happened. That's how it happened so quickly, and it cascaded so quickly across sports that immediately my first thoughts were, we are now operating without a compass because there's next to nothing historically that could prepare us for something like this. Well, that's a great intro to my next question, I guess, because I want to try to reach for some historical parallels here. I mean, we could think of symbolic gestures, historic moments, you know, the raised fist at the Olympics, Muhammad Ali, perhaps uh, any number of others. Obviously, uh, the one that, of course, comes to mind most recently and most relevant is uh, Colin Kaepernick, almost four years uh, to the day that he took his knee. So can you speak a little bit to the lack of a parallel that you were talking about and the extent to which we can even build off of those experiences of the last 50 years? Well, there were instances in the 1960s, a couple of instances where uh, teams did not take the court or did not take the field because they were playing exhibition games in the South and the black athletes themselves were treated so terribly that they just did not play. There are a couple of instances of that. There are instances of colleges uh, boycotting, uh, playing at uh, Brigham Young University to protest the what was then the racist uh, dogma of the Mormon Church at that time. So you have examples like that. Um, as far as uh, Colin Kaepernick goes, um, I think what's interesting is there's a Kaepernick Ali parallel that's interesting to talk about because uh, Muhammad Ali was absolutely reviled when he refused to uh, be part of the draft and join the Vietnam War. Uh, but it only took a few short years for as you know as sentiment in the United States turned against the war in Vietnam for a whole generation of athletes and fans to say Muhammad Ali was right. He was right to do that at the time, and we stand with Ali. There's a similar Kaepernick dynamic in that it's been four years. But remember, Kaepernick took his knee. It's August 2016. Donald Trump is still just a candidate. And it's no one will say now, four years into Donald Trump, that we don't have a problem of institutionalized racism in this country. I mean, Trump has dredged up something primordial and violent uh, that has always existed in the American spirit, but he's put it out there right on the table for everybody to see. So now Colin Kaepernick is looked at as more of a prophetic voice than as this uh, one-off symbolic athlete activist. And you have this whole generation of athletes, people who are in their early 20s, who, you know, in the last four years is when they've come of age. And they view Colin Kaepernick as a hero and as a prophet and as somebody who uh, they, they want to see themselves as being in that tradition. So that's the impact of Kaepernick on these athletes. You might even want to call them Generation Kaepernick if you want to. And historically, oh, the other historical example, which needs to be mentioned, of course, was the effort to organize the Black Olympic athletes for the, before the 1968 Games to do a boycott of those Olympics. But again, these are inexact parallels because, first of all, that boycott fell through, um, and second, and that which is why Tommy Smith and John Carlos were at the Olympics to raise their fists in Mexico City. But also, that was a that was a boycott effort. You know, th this was strikes. Now, even though a lot of the sports media has called what's happened over the last week or so um, boycotts, like players are boycotting their games, this is not a boycott. You know, boycotting is when you as a consumer refuse to consume something as a political act or refuse to ride a bus in Montgomery, Alabama in 1955. 
you know, you're boycotting that business. This is a strike. These are people withholding their labor to impact uh, the questions of racism and racial justice in the United States. And to that point, it is interesting and and uh, I think noteworthy and a bit sad that in doing so, we saw almost no examples of any solidarity from other sectors of labor uh, organized in the form of uh, labor unions or even in the form of wildcat strikes or anything like that. I mean, we saw inklings of that here and there, and certainly we're seeing rumblings in other industries for other reasons. But in terms of any solidarity, this was a really uh, failed moment for the unions, wasn't it? Well, it's interesting because I don't think this, we can write that in pen yet. Uh, let's write it in pencil because I don't really know where this is going to go. I, I don't think it was going to ricochet immediately into other sectors of the U.S. economy as other workforces went out on strike uh, to protest for black lives. Um, but I think it started a discussion and made it real um, inside several unions. I was on a conference call today with uh, – People who are from the teachers union, for example, and they were telling me about, um, I don't want to say which teachers union, but of, of a large uh, city. And th- they were telling me about how what the players had done had immediately started debates and discussions in their unions about what they could do. Uh, so it's early. Now, I, it certainly didn't ricochet to an electric degree in an immediate response or anything like that. But, you know, labor has been so dormant in this fight for black lives that, um, and it's been, you know, with the exception of, of like hospital workers and teachers who are striking for their, or threatening to strike for their very survival. I mean, labor hasn't really imprinted itself on this moment at all. This moment of tremendous crisis in the United States where we're sitting here in this broken country, um, and the threat of fascism looms and, but what you do have is at least these discussions starting to begin. I mean, labor is going to have to sit up before it can walk, before it can run, uh, before it can move. And, and I do think, if nothing else, what the players did was like an electric prod to labor to get them to start thinking about what they can do. Well, and particularly in places like Wisconsin, which was the site of probably the most significant labor upsurge we've seen in the last decade in, in Madison a number of years ago, uh, there there is a significant presence of labor unions with progressive politics in Wisconsin, uh, and certainly historically and even into today. So that's at least partially what I think I'm responding to by saying it was certainly disappointing to see a lack of activity on that front. Yeah, I mean, in Wisconsin would be a place where you'd want to see it. Uh, certainly, um, and as we're doing this right now, you know, Trump is planning on going to Kenosha uh, this week. It's a disgusting act of uh, him going there. Um, at this moment in time, he's going over the objections of both the mayor of Kenosha and the governor of Wisconsin. I mean, you know, and, and I think a lot of people, a lot of workers are in a very defensive posture because of the level of unemployment, economic crisis, the pandemic. It's just, it's going to take, I think it's going to take a while for people to get their feet under themselves. But at the very least, what the players have done is they've put it out there into the atmosphere. They've put it out there into the oxygen. This idea that labor can insert itself into this struggle when before it hadn't. 
You were on this show about a year ago, Dave, maybe a little more than that, and we talked about something that had happened a year earlier when Josh Hader had been suspended for racist tweets that he had uh, that he had tweeted out when he was, I think, 17, his uh, comeback, and then the response from the fans in Milwaukee, which I thought was a significant moment. And fast forward a couple of years, Josh Hader is one of the more outspoken uh, members of the Milwaukee Brewers on the issue of Black Lives Matter, on the, on the issue of walking off the field and of standing up for black teammates. So I'd like to talk a little bit about the carryover into Major League Baseball with the Milwaukee Brewers, uh, particularly since that team specifically represents the most segregated city in America, one with a deep legacy of very uh, institutionalized forms of racism and discrimination. So speak a little bit about the Brewers joining in baseball's conservative legacy and maybe even Josh Hader. Yeah, I mean, baseball has such a conservative legacy. I mean, it bathes itself in the, the memory of Jackie Robinson and there's Jackie Robinson day where all the players wear 42 and they talk about their role in the civil rights movement. And so much of it is just unadulterated bullshit. I mean, they, they leave out that uh, the, the Brooklyn Dodgers were the only team to even vote to say we should integrate the sport. Uh, it, was, it was done over the, the, the protestations and screams of everybody except Branch Rickey and the commissioner at the time, Happy Chandler. And if the previous commissioner, Judge Landis, hadn't died, uh, Jackie Robinson probably never would have seen the field. Um, so th- th- it's a mythology that baseball has anyway been this progressive force uh, in the country. And yet at the same time, uh, baseball is also woven very deeply into the fabric of the United States. That's un- undeniable for better and for worse. And that's when I knew that what's happened in the last week was really serious and was uh, penetrating ideologically to a degree far beyond um, what, what I could have hoped when the Milwaukee Brewers also decided that they were not going to play. Um, because I mean, who expected to see it in major? I didn't expect to see this go into major league baseball and the fact that it did go into major league baseball and the fact that Josh Hader was the first person in front of the microphone saying that the brewers would not be playing because there are things more important, namely the police shooting of Jacob Blake. I mean, that, that said so much. I mean, it didn't just say something about, uh, the ways in which, um, the black lives matter movement or you could just want to say disgust with racist police violence had penetrated larger consciousness. Um, it also is significant because it was Josh Hader. And, you know, when he apologized uh, for his racist tweets, his racist tweets were, were, were sent, I believe in 2011. And when he apologized in 2018, you know, that there was a lot of skepticism among people, um, particularly people who, you know, see themselves as on the left. I'm going by social media here. And, Yet, I think what we saw with haters' comments is that, you know what, people can change and struggle can change people. And at a moment like this in, in U.S. history, that in and of itself is very inspiring because uh, it looks so much like people have these fixed ideas and we're on a toboggan ride towards some kind of civil war. So when you have an example of somebody who's like, yeah, you know, my consciousness of it has been impacted. Uh, by police violence, by the Black Lives Matter movement, by the killing of George Floyd. And I don't think my team should take the field. I thought that was a very powerful moment and an important moment too. And then it goes from Major League Baseball to hockey, for goodness sakes. And I think what, what this is also a reflection of, and this is something I think we could talk about more, 
is, is the ways in which the protests after the killing of the police killing of George Floyd, how multiracial those protests actually were, um, how they took place in all 50 states, how they were in states like Idaho and Wyoming, how you had some small cities or towns, I should say. I remember reading about one, I think it was in Kansas, where there was one black resident who lived in the town and they still had a demonstration, solidarity demonstration in town of dozens of people. And I think that that impacting on white consciousness, that impacting um, against racist ideas, against police brutality, I think there's no other way to explain how it found purchase in Major League Baseball or in the NHL uh, without understanding that aspect of it. And as you said at the very beginning, using the term, I think, woke capitalism, I mean, there is something very self-interested in this. And I'm not saying that uh, to poo-poo the fact that corporate brands and stuff have taken notice, but rather to kind of to your point that it has penetrated the consciousness to such a degree that it's simply bad business not to say Black Lives Matter. Well, I think that's an important point um, in terms of where this is going, because there, there's this um, there's this. I think what we've seen has been so powerful that there's now this race to co-opt it. And I think some of the people racing the fastest are the people in the National Football League. Um, As we're doing this recording, the NFL season starts in about 11 days. And NFL owners, Commissioner Roger Goodell, they are scared to death of players going on strike. And so what they're trying to do right now is have statements put out by teams talking about where they want to see racial justice go in this country. You know, the Baltimore Ravens as a team put out a statement calling for the arrest of the cops who killed Breonna Taylor and the arrest of the cops who shot, like the police officer who shot uh, Jacob Blake. You know, as a team, they put out um, a call for the George Floyd policing bill to uh, pass through Congress and to have Mitch McConnell stop holding it on his desk, like the, you know, absolutely repulsive turtle man that he is. Um, but I think you saw, you saw that in the NHL as well, where the players were really upset at, on the first day that they didn't also sit out their games. And so then they were so upset, though, that the teams decided in conjunction with management that they wouldn't play. And that is less of a strike situation. That's much more of a, of a I don't know what you want to call it, but I think woke marketing is probably the best way to talk about it. So there is that push to co-opt it. There is that push to make sure that it's not perceived through a labor lens because then, I mean, it becomes over-empowering to the players themselves. And that's something I think management is going to try to head off. Let's take a quick break. On the other side of the break, a lot more to talk about. I want to talk about what happened with the meeting with Obama, what that means, what we might take from that, any historical uh, examples we might want to look at and what we should expect in the future. We'll continue the conversation with Dave Zyron. You're listening to Counterpunch Radio. We'll be right back. Anti-Christ, they anti-social point MC. 
six feet. Cause I'm anti the anti nigga machine. Proletarian, funkadelic, parliamentarian, pro revolt in the 21st century. Pro running up in China saying fuck it all. But bring the people with you, that's the protocol. This beat is joyful like jailbreaks. The whole world is anti United Snakes. So check it out, anticipate the shine of venom. And move your antibody to this revolution rhythm. We gon' be fucking with them. Pro union, but most lost they bite. Motherfuckers crossing a strike Take a look around and be for or against But you can't do shit if you riding the fence Ride the fence Now you don't really wanna ride the fence Now you really wanna ride the fence Or would you really wanna ride the fence Don't ride the fence Ride the fence Now you don't really wanna ride the fence would you really wanna ride the fence And we're back here chatting with Dave Zyron Edge of Sports on Twitter Edge of Sports is the podcast It is one of the best podcasts you will get in your podcast player. So please do make sure to subscribe to that, subscribe to all of his content. I believe you can also do it in the form of a newsletter. Uh, go to the website, edgeofsports.com. So uh, Dave, before the break, we were talking a little bit about the NFL, and I guess we'll just pick it up right there. One of the things about the NFL, to me at least, and I, I'd like to get your comment on this, is that more than any other sport, the body is disposable in the NFL and it is such a, and it is such a, uh, it is such a black dominated sport and the black bodies are so disposable in that sport that it, and of course we're talking about CTE, uh, you know, the, the long-term health effects we're talking about, the lack of uh, protections, the lack of health insurance, all of the reasons why the NFL is really the most anti-player league. It is interesting given a pandemic and everything that's happening, what the NFL is going to look like here. Yeah. I mean, what the NFL is going to look like is, you know, they're going to play games in front of largely empty crowds, if not entirely empty stands with the weird hologram effect of fans. And what they're trying to do is keep the trains running on time because the NFL's money doesn't even come from fans. It comes from the billions of dollars in TV deals that they have set up. So they need these games played. They don't care if they got to play them in the parking lot. They need some product to put on television. Now, they're also dealing, though, with the fact that its players have become highly, highly politicized. I mean, the voices of the players' movement in the NFL, I mean, has been led by Patrick Mahomes, who is the quarterback of the Kansas City football team, which just won the Super Bowl, highest paid player in the league. You know, they've got their own LeBron situation on their hands, where with the NBA, it's a lot harder to crack down on political players, or it has been over the last... I would say five or six years because LeBron was one of those players. So it's like he provided a kind of force field for other players. Uh, you have a similar dynamic with Mahomes uh, in the NFL. Of course, the NFL is not like the NBA for the reasons that you said. Um, player careers last only three and a half years. The contracts aren't guaranteed. It's a lot easier to get rid of players. But the problem is that you can't get rid of everybody. And black talent is the, the beating heart of that league. And there is a great deal of restiveness among black players because of the exiling of Colin Kaepernick, because of the owners who support Donald Trump, that they feel like they are not um, valued as human beings by the league. And that discussion is right there on the table uh, over Twitter feeds and in in essays that are published on the Players' Tribune website, uh, in interviews that players are giving. Like They've had enough with the way things have been in the NFL for, for decades. Uh, and I think the killing of George Floyd was a breaking point. 
And it was a breaking point for all the players who were said behind the scenes that Colin Kaepernick was right. And now you've got even Roger Goodell saying, yeah, we should have treated Colin Kaepernick better. It's an unbelievable concession. Remember, this is a league that just a year ago was posing with Jay-Z as he said the time for kneeling has passed. See, that was their first plan to deal with the black athlete. Throw a little money at, at, at a players coalition that was doing uh, you know good works in the cities and get Jay-Z front and center as their new director of entertainment and holding him out as a future franchise owner. There's never been a black franchise owner in the NFL. And that, but that bubble has completely popped to use the metaphor of the moment. So right now what the NFL is doing is trying to, you know, I view it as like, you know, they're dancing as fast as they can. They're trying desperately to figure out how they can head off um, any sort of work stoppage that would be put on by players. Now, and I think that's an open, I don't think it's going to happen in the next couple of weeks, cause I, but I, what I think will happen is that the NFL will, there will be a flurry of statements from NFL teams, like the one I described from the Baltimore Ravens. I know for a fact that the Seattle Seahawks are already like trying to put one together at the moment. And the, the hope is that it'll, they'll, they'll announce hirings like uh, social justice coordinators and things of that nature. And the goal of it is going to be uh, to try to head off a strike. It's just, it's a co-optation project. Is there less of an impact with NFL because it's team oriented, because it's not so individual in the way that the NBA is? I mean, the NBA is a superstar league. Everybody knows that. The players that everybody knows, the names that everybody recognizes, I mean, those faces are out there. Everybody knows who they are. And the NFL, it's, it's less so. Baseball, obviously, even less so. But the NFL really is this kind of league of a lot of anonymous players and faces. I wonder whether that blunts the impact of these sorts of statements. Well, it's definitely um, blunted their ability to put themselves forward as a, a player's league the way the NBA has. I mean, the NBA just naturally tends more in that direction, partially because of guaranteed contracts. Like you can't get rid of players as easily, but it's also definitely just the fact that, you know, they, there they are so close to the fans wearing just shorts and a tank top and that there's a visibility factor uh, that the NFL players simply do not have. But one of the things that's also meant is that even though the NFL is much, much more profitable than the NBA, NBA players get paid more than NFL players. And that's been a source of great frustration for NFL players over the last 20 years. And so what, what, you, what you're going to see, though, is that even though the NFL players are maybe operating a decade, a decade and a half behind NBA players in terms of players asserting their power, it's coming in the NFL. It's being developed in the NFL. NFL players, um, and this is partly the, the impact on consciousness that Colin Kaepernick had, NFL players are starting to see that they have a platform that they haven't been exercising the way they could if they want to see the kind of change that they want to see in a post-George Floyd world. And what about the unrest at the college level? Uh, there was a lot of talk about the various college conferences and the cancellation of games and what that means, not only for those players potentially headed to the NFL, but the vast majority of players who will never play football beyond the season. Um, where do we stand at the college level vis-a-vis -vis Black Lives Matter and these social justice issues? Is this also dovetailing with the broader discussion of the exploitation of college athletes? Uh, it is. That is happening. Um, and before I get into that, it's worth saying that uh, a year before Colin Kaepernick took his knee, uh, it was the Missouri football team, which was 
uh, black team that went on strike and refused to play games uh, be, as a response to racist incidents at the University of Missouri campus. And that led the school president to being fired uh, because they realized it was going to cost a million dollars a week. Like the school would have to write a check for a million dollars a week for every uh, week that the, the, they had to forfeit a game. And so, I mean, so I think like these college athletes, they have so little and so much power. They are the most powerful and the most powerless uh, people in this uh, in this discussion. I mean, they're powerless because, you know, they don't have a union. They don't have a seat at the table. Uh, they don't have a way to make themselves heard in the formal structure of college football and college basketball. But they're also so powerful more so than other athletes, because the modern neoliberal campus depends on college football, uh, depends in other cases on, but less so on college basketball. Uh, the economies of entire towns depend on how good the college football team is. So there, there's a pressure that they can put on these on these universities uh, for their rights and for uh, getting the university to have a progressive racial justice agenda. That's there for them to be exercised. Now, um, before the, these, uh, this NBA, uh, Major League Baseball, WNBA strike wave that we've been talking about um, against racism, before this and you know, after the killing of George Floyd, that, that um, became intertwined among college athletes' mind with the issue of the COVID pandemic. And they, they looked at it as we are not safe on two fronts if we go back and just play without any safety protocols or without any uh, you know, health benefits or anything. We're, we're in danger by COVID and we're in danger by police violence. And we need to do something about this. So the Pac-12 players organized themselves. Uh, they put out some remarkable statements over the summer that combined these issues of racial justice and health justice in the face of COVID uh, the Big Ten players did the same. And interestingly, I find it very interesting that of the Big Five conferences, the two that have canceled for this fall are the Pac-12 and the Big Ten. Like, I wonder how coincidental that is, or if it wasn't a factor in them canceling, that the players looked very ready to struggle in protest. Switching gears to baseball as we begin to wrap it up here, I want to ask you about black players in baseball, because this has, of course, been an issue for several decades, the uh, disappearance of the black player in Major League Baseball, the disappearance of baseball from American cities more broadly. And uh, that issue, of course, also comes to the fore when we talk about Black Lives Matter. Uh, obviously, baseball and the demographics of baseball really are a central issue and why baseball really lags behind basketball and football in this regard. There's been some talk more recently, especially in light of the protests, about this issue uh, and about the ways in which baseball might benefit from this uh, in the sense of reorienting itself back towards uh, investment in American cities and things like that. This has been talked about for a long time. This is mm -hmm. well before the Floyd protests, but it does seem to have a greater sense of urgency with players coming out, people like Lorenzo Cain and other prominent black players who are talking about these issues, including uh, up and coming superstars like Joe Adele and others. So can you speak a little bit about the, uh, well, let's, let's call it the, the, the place of the black player in major league baseball and whether that might change. 
Well, I mean, it's interesting because, I mean, there's a great website people should check out called the Players Alliance. It's run by CC Sabathia, and it's it's about, like, trying to organize the voice of the Black American player. Because, of course, there, there are tons of, uh, of players of African descent in Major League Baseball, but they tend to be, you know, they're from Dominican Republic, they're from Venezuela, uh, they're from Cuba. And but but as far as like the black American player, you know, that that has been in decline for decades and all sorts of uh, initiatives by Major League Baseball, like the RBI program that stands for reviving baseball in the inner cities, like it hasn't really made a dent in the declining numbers. I don't know if this particular moment or inflection point is going to do something like that, because the the power and pull of globalization on one hand which allows them to invest on the cheap, you know, in the Dominican Republic and, and develop players in, in, a, in a very, very exploitative manner on the one hand. And then, of course, the other major pipeline comes through the colleges and the universities, which are well, the baseball programs there are overwhelmingly white. I mean, to a degree that even makes Major League Baseball look uh, positively integrated on the flip side. So I don't know how that dynamic is, is necessarily going to shift. But when you have the outspoken players like Tim Anderson, um, also and also be like incredibly successful at the same time, um, it makes a difference. Uh, it makes a difference. I'm hoping for a generational shift in this regard. I'm a huge baseball fan, for example. But, you know, when you have a situation where you have entire teams without black American players, or in the Boston Red Sox, have one, one black American player, Jackie Bradley Jr., and, you know, it was put on his shoulders to speak for the entire team, even though several members of his team apparently were rolling their eyes at the whole idea of sitting out a game. I mean, that's a lot of pressure. That's a lot of pressure. You'd like to see uh, more white players be in the in the tradition, if you will, of, of Josh Hader and get front and center and say, you know, like we need to do a better job in this sport of not just recruiting black talent, but also elevating black talent to management, uh, upper management, and, you know, not making the sport uh, as, as incredibly country clubbish as it continues to be. Well, that's exactly uh, one of the things that I've heard being discussed, that part of the reason why baseball lacks black players in the way that it does is because of the structure at the youth level. I mean, in order to be noticed, in order to uh, go where you want to go in terms of a career, you have to play on these traveling teams. It costs a lot of money. you got to yeah. spend all kinds of you know, traveling time. You have to have parents who are employed and financially capable and able to take time off work and all of this sort of stuff. So it, it's self-selective uh, for privilege, really, for white privilege and so that the fact that, that issue is even being discussed and acknowledged the structural inequity that exists in the development of baseball talent I think is certainly a sea change from even 10 years ago I certainly hope so uh, your mouth God's ears in that regard I just worry that the um, the the magnetic force of globalization uh, makes it very difficult. And the fact that one of the reasons why we don't have baseball in the cities is because of the way neoliberalism has hollowed out our cities. I mean, you need budgets, you need youth centers, you need leagues to develop that kind of talent. And, you know, that's something I think beyond even baseball with its deep pockets can't really substitute for the absence of urban infrastructure in this country. 
Uh, to wrap up our conversation here, I want to return to the NBA strike and one of the stories that has come out of that that's really, I think, worth comment here, uh, specifically the role of Obama. Obama had a meeting with uh, LeBron James, I think Chris Paul, and maybe one or two others, or maybe it was a conference call with more. I'm not sure how many people were involved, but the point being that Obama more or less urged them to get back on the court. So I have a couple of questions related to that. One, of course, is just your take on that and how you read uh, what Obama said, how the players responded and what's happened since. And then really the second question here is, is Obama an obstacle to progress in all of this? Because certainly Obama played a role in pushing Joe Biden. Obama play, seemingly has played a role in torpedoing a potential NBA strike. I want to get your read both on how this played out and on the role of Obama here. I mean, part of it is our understanding that Obama is a moderate uh, and he's always been a, a moderate. And so the idea that he wouldn't push Biden or the idea that he would call for players to continue to go out on strike and, and, and not have a season. I mean, that goes against the very core of who Obama is and who he's always been. I think sometimes, uh, you know, the, the fantasies of who Obama is by both people on the left and the right, quite frankly, uh, cloud us from that basic reality of this is who this guy is. Um, it probably goes without saying that, you know, Barack Obama has very close relationships with the NBA uh, very close relationships with a lot of players and therefore a tremendous amount of influence. So, you know, the I, first of all, I'm not surprised that they turned to Obama. I'm not surprised that he flexed his influence and I'm not surprised that all of his instincts were as conservatizing as possible. Now, all of that being, and it reminded me a little bit, there was a little bit of an echo for me. It's not a perfect historical echo, but there's a little echo to me of uh, Bobby Kennedy famously saying to the Freedom Riders, uh, why don't you stop all this sitting down shit and sitting in shit, and we can get you an office and some tax-free status. Like, or I, like I had that echo in my head, except the reason why that's an imperfect echo is because um, while Obama and Bobby Kennedy are playing the same role in each of those situations, the NBA players, I mean, they're not freedom riders. You know, they're, they're citizens. They're people who are responding to the fact that this country is broken. And so it's not surprising that... Uh, they would turn to President Obama, and it's not surprising that he would try to lead them down this particular path. Uh, the one thing I'll also say about it, though, is that I don't think the decision by the players to go back and play removes their leverage from this situation. I don't think they surrendered their leverage. I think it's still a situation that is very, like I said at the beginning of this interview, it's much more written in pencil than it is in pen. If there's another police shooting, if there's some more malicious shit, if there's uh, other instances. These players are prepared now to go out again. They've done it once. They can do it again. And this has to be said, too, that there's a lot of tension between LeBron James and this young generation of players. LeBron's 36. The young players who are angry about this stuff, they're in their early 20s. LeBron has got this vote plan, vote, vote, vote. A lot of these players like Jalen Brown, who quotes Angela Davis in press conferences, he's talking more about how you become part of the movement and how you march. So there are political differences as well inside the NBA fraternity, which could make themselves known if things are not brought to a more calm place. And there's no reason why we should think they will be, given the tenor of politics in this country. My final question really has to do with Americans and American public and, and, and the sports consuming audience, because it, it always is, I think, instructive to look at 
who by and large supports and watches and spends money on which sports and how that is reflected in the politics here. So can you speak, uh, especially for those people who aren't really sports fans, who don't necessarily know all of these distinctions, especially for our listeners outside of the United States, what are the major differences between, say, the base of uh, uh, consumers for football and the base of consumers for basketball? And how does that reflect in the politics here? Oh, I mean, <clears throat> sorry, basketball is very much cultivates a younger audience. It's a younger audience that tends to be much more uh, rooted in cities, and it tends to be an, argue, an, an audience that is is much more progressive. I mean, and it's an audience that is mul- much more multiracial. I mean, that's just their constituency. That's their audience. And they're, they would be doing their business model no favors if they were like, what, George Floyd who? Jacob Blake who? Breonna Taylor who? Who cares? You know, that they would be submarining themselves, not just with their players, but with their audience. It's a very different situation with Major League Baseball. It's a very different situation with the NFL. Here you're dealing with a much more white fan base that's much more conservative. But that's what makes what the players are doing so much more thrilling. Because what they're doing is like, this is the great accomplishment. People say like, oh, these athletes haven't accomplished anything. I think their ability to recenter this conversation around Jacob Blake and not on what the Republicans are trying to make this about, which is, you know, anarchists are ruining our cities. These Democrat cities are hell holes. All this, you know, this, this hysteria that they're trying to build about crime in the cities. What these players have done for largely white audiences is say, no, this is about somebody who was shot seven times in the back in Kenosha, Wisconsin. And that is very powerful. That's a tremendous use of the platform and their cultural weight. And I I think that that uh, is what makes this a moment that is filled not just with co-optation, but with the possibility of true institutional change. Can I just can I just pose one additional point, though, and I just want to get your comment on it Uh, at the same time. It really strikes me that those who I would say are, you know, of the, the the Trumpist right, the fascists, the militia types and all of these types, they look at the professional sports leagues, all saying Black Lives Matter, all nodding to the movement, and they feel that ever more justified in their posture. They feel the culture is under attack. It's all of the institutions are being taken over. Look, it's even on TV. It's even our sports. Mm -hmm. You see, so in one sense, it's a use of a platform for for the kind of message that we want to see. And in another sense, one gets a feeling that this is really turning up the intensity on the violence, I think. Well, that's on them. I mean, honestly, because I feel th- this is part of their politics is the politics of being aggrieved. So it, it, whether it would be LeBron James writing BLM on his sneakers or it being put on the court, they would seize upon it because that's their fuel for existing is being aggrieved and this idea of a culture war and being under attack. And it's why Obama or Pence can't even say the words Black Lives Matter because they're, they're that uh, enthrall of this white nationalist movement and of these white nationalist tendencies. So to them, I say, you know, like, do you want some cheese with that wine? Because it's like, you got to deal with the world as it is. You got to deal with why people are um, actually trying to fight for black lives in a country that sees them as disposable and any amount of aggrievement that they feel, if it wasn't on the NBA court, they would find it somewhere else. 
No doubt about it. We will leave it there. Dave Zirin's been with me today. Edge of Sports is the podcast at Edge of Sports on Twitter. Also, of course, the column at The Nation. As always, Dave is a must read, a must listen. Thank you, as always, Dave, for coming back on the show. No, thank you so much, Eric. Listeners, thank you, as always, for supporting Counterpunch, for listening to the show. And we'll talk again next week. (laughs) 